Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to sit down and chat with the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode is another great example of how artificial intelligence and computer vision are impacting the future of agriculture. In last week's episode, those of you who caught it, we covered Soma Detect and how they're bringing these technology advancements to the dairy segment. Well, today's episode, we're going to focus on row crop applications. Specifically, we're talking about new drone spraying technology from a Canadian startup called Precision AI. Longtime listeners will recall that we've talked about drone spraying on the show before, but today's episode goes even deeper into both the technology and the opportunities that can come from the per plant precision that it offers. Also really cool about today's episode is our guest, Precision AI founder and CEO Daniel McCann. He's a three-time startup founder with over 25 years in technology in diverse industries such as artificial intelligence, fintech, security, fast food, and now agriculture. Daniel was a finalist in the 2013 ABEX Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, personally holds six patents, and his previous company, NetSecure, was mentioned in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, which I think is very cool. In fact, I ask him about it here in just a few minutes. Precision AI is a portfolio company of Fulcrum Global Capital, who I'm very happy to be partnering with again on today's episode. Before we dive into the conversation with Daniel, I wanted to talk to Fulcrum Venture partner Kevin Lockett about what initially attracted them to ultimately make the investment in Precision AI. We at Fulcrum, we've always been interested in the precision agricultural space and all of the opportunities that we've looked at. It's been hard for us to find opportunities where we're excited about not only the team, but the business model and the approach but probably more importantly, what I'll call the farmer ROI. Uh, What excited us about Precision AI is first, when we look at at the technology, we believe that it's a best-in-class technology stack. We're excited that the round was being co-led by At One Ventures. And so uh, Tom's got a background from Google X. Lori's got a background in the chemical industry and spent some time at BASF. And so it was the perfect combination, I think, from our side to have that group co-leading this round uh, so that we were able to really do a deep dive on the technology stack. And I think we walked away pretty impressed with what Daniel McCann and his team were building. If you recall listening to other episodes I've done that featured Fulcrum portfolio companies, you'll probably notice a common theme, which is making farmers and ranchers more profitable. Kevin says that was definitely a big part of the appeal here with Precision AI. Simply put, what they are doing is they are taking a drone, Uh, They have the capabilities to use computer vision to do green on green uh, and to get very, very accurate graphs of what is a weed and what is a plant. Uh, They're also able to then take that, what I'll call weed map, and at the moment, they're able to load that into a traditional boom sprayer. And the boom sprayers are able to turn the nozzles on and off when necessary uh, in order to only begin spraying the weed. So just that alone begins to save roughly somewhere between 40 and 50% of traditional chemical costs for the farmer. Version two of the technology is more around utilizing other delivery vehicles such as drones 
to be able to get even more precise. And so in their testing, where they've been working right now, we believe that they have the ability to get upwards of 80% in terms of chemical cost savings by using drones to do precision spraying on these weeds. And so our hope is that they reach their ultimate dream, which is where they are able to automate that entire crop spraying process for the farmer, where they can drive out to a farm, they can release a hive of drones. Those drones go out and take the weed maps, they come back and dock, they then go right back out and they spray based on those same weed maps ultimately saving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for many of these farms in terms of the chemical input costs. It's really a cool approach of developing the technology and having a sort of short-term use case, in, you know, such as mapping for traditional spraying, but also a long-term opportunity with a high ceiling, in this case, drone spraying, once the regulatory and other hurdles have been cleared. The drone technology has not been released. Obviously, as you know, it's still illegal in many places to fly the drone and do this. So we're still waiting on some work uh, that they're doing with the FAA and others. But in the background, the technology, the team that's been built, the help that's coming from from folks like At One Ventures and BDC, we really believe that when they're able to go out into the field and use drones to spray, their technical capabilities will be superior, we believe, to all that are out there. Okay, so that's the investor perspective on what we're talking about here today. Thank you very much to Kevin Lockett and the team at Fulcrum Global Capital. But now let's turn our attention over to our featured conversation with Precision AI founder and CEO Daniel McCann. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where he's explaining how a technology entrepreneur eventually finds himself in agriculture. So I've always, uh, you know, t- to my detriment, probably had the idea that I wanted to do something big. I didn't really want to go create, you know, just like a SaaS app that I could sell locally to a bunch of companies and, you know, make a million bucks and that's it, right? That wasn't really what I wanted to do. I've, I've always kind of had that change the world type of mentality. And, and I know that uh, everybody says that, but unfortunately, uh, I tended to choose uh, projects that were much more difficult than they kind of needed to be for, for just that reason. So my, my first venture was, uh, this was back before the days of the smartphone when e-commerce was king. And, you know, I came up with an idea of, you know, putting in like when you would buy a laptop or when you would buy a keyboard, if you were shopping online, instead of having to go and like type in all your credit card information and type in your address and, you know, choose your shipping methods and do all that stuff, like for every single purchase on every single website, why wouldn't you just, you know, have sort of like a credit card reader built into your laptop that if you're shopping online, you just go, and then it would just be like in a store and you'd just get the good ship to you. So that was sort of like the first company that I founded. It was called NetSecure. Um, I did that one for about 10 years and then sold that to a company down in Montreal, Canada. And then after that, I got into artificial intelligence. I always knew that AI was going to be kind of the next big thing and was just looking for the right idea to kind of get in on. I ended up uh, starting a business about uh, trying to buy and sell online using artificial intelligence. The idea being that for people who are really, really busy, why couldn't you just like walk into your garage with your cell phone and like snap a picture of, you know, that bike you want to sell. And then what it'll actually do is use AI to figure out what that bike actually is worth based on how much that bike has been sold for before and like write your listing for you. I found it harder and we uh, we invested into that and, uh, you know, fairly quickly on realized that that was a much more ambitious project than we thought it was going to be and ended up uh, actually pivoting into agriculture and wound up indirectly forming Precision AI. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, I definitely want to drill deeper into that pivot. But first of all, I think that's a fantastic idea. I mean, I don't know where it's going from here or if there's other companies pursuing it, but like I've got stuff around my house that I just don't want to put in the effort of figuring out 
how to list it, how much to list it, where to list it. Even if I knew I was selling too cheap, if I could go take a picture with my phone and then like somebody say I bought it, ship it to me. Yeah, I'd be all over that. But anyway, I, I digress here. Before we get into precision AI and that pivot you just talked about, I understand that NetSecure was cited in Peter Thiel's Zero to One book, which is like one of the Bibles of Silicon Valley. Is that right? And how did that happen? Uh, yeah, actually, it was. I don't know how it happened. I guess he ran out of good things to talk about, so he had to talk about my company. <laughs> but uh, it was in reference to he was talking about Square and about the innovations at the time that were going from uh, you know online commerce to mobile commerce using your cell phone, and that was one of the areas that NetSecure had sort of branched out into, I guess, in uh, you know in its later years. He had mentioned our company in that, which was very cool because, you know, here I am up in like Saskatchewan, Canada and, you know, getting mentored in Peter Thiel's startup book. So I thought I was pretty excited about that. That is really awesome. Yeah. So it, it total shock to you that you were even on his radar. Total shock. Total <laughs> shock. Yeah. That's cool. Very cool. Well, yeah, let's let's go back to that pivot. So how do you go from an app that you list products online to agriculture? You know, it seems like there's some details in there that we need to connect the dots. <laughs> yeah, so so what ended up happening is, uh, you know, we were pretty excited about that idea. And as you say, it's a good idea. And by the way, if any of your listeners are interested in it, I still have all the code and all the stuff. We just ended up not moving forward with it. So maybe somebody wants to pick up the reins and run with it. But basically what uh, what happened is it, was, it ended up being really, really good at certain things like bikes where you've got a lot of visual differentiation between stuff. But then there's a lot of stuff that people sell that actually looks pretty similar to other stuff. Like at the time, right, this is years ago when DVDs were still a thing. If you're trying to sell a DVD player, well, three DVD players look almost identical to each other from the perspective of how you take a picture. So figuring out what how to price that thing was pretty challenging. So we looked at this and we're like, you know what, I bet you we could solve these problems, but it's going to take a lot more time and capital and effort than we really kind of like want to put in here. And at the time, there was a, another company that had raised a bunch of money and that they actually didn't go anywhere. But at the time, we sort of looked at the competitive environment and said, you know what, let's find some other application for this AI. And that's where the light bulb kind of went off is because in the office, whenever we were testing this AI, we would snap a picture of the office plant, right? That was just our testing platform to snap, snap. And it was flawless in picking plants up. And so that's when the light bulb went off and said, well, maybe there's an agricultural application for what we've done. And the nice thing about us is given that we are like in Saskatchewan, Canada, it's like one of the breadbasket of North America in a lot of ways. It's, you know, I think something like 66% of the arable land in Canada is like a six hour drive from where I live. So everything is agriculture here, right? Like my family farmed, I didn't, but my family did. You can't throw a stone without finding somebody who has a farm. So it's, uh, you know, as Charlie Munger says, fish where the fish are. So we've got this great AI that is good at detecting plants and we're in this like huge agricultural center. And so we ended up looking for an application of it. And what popped out was uh, very, very quickly was, well, what if you could like survey a field and like identify what the plants were? So instead of spraying an entire field with chemical, what if you could just only spray where the problem areas are? How much would that save you? And then we did an investigation and it was just like jaw dropping. You know, it, it's about 80% of the chemical that's sprayed on your average typical field. And every farm does this. 80% is just wasted on the dirt. Right. And about another 10 to 15 percent of that, if you're spraying in a crop, hits the crop, which is exactly what you don't want. Right. There's like a multi-billion dollar chemical industry out there that's predicated on the fact that, well, if you have to spray everything, let's kill the bad stuff, but not hurt the good stuff. But what if you could use AI to not even spray that stuff to begin with? If you just sprayed the bad stuff and nothing else, what would that mean? And when you crunch the numbers and did the math and the chemical savings, I mean, it was just staggering. And so we talked to a bunch of farmers about that, and all of them, without hesitation, said, if you could do that, I'll buy that. So we knew we had something. And so hence how Precision AI was born. 
And at that point, were you pitching them a drone application or just some sort of like sea and spray technology that maybe we weren't sure how it would be administered? So my, again, my, my predilection and my nature to not just solve the easy problem, but unfortunately take it to the next level and solve the much more challenging problem kind of bit me a bit, but it, it paid off. Because part of that is that, well, if we're going to solve this problem, drones actually have a lot of advantages over ground-based systems, right? So if you take a sprayer, for example, let's say your 120-foot sprayer that's out there with your big, long boom arms out there. Well, to be able to see a 120-foot swath, you need like something like 30 cameras to do the sea and spray. And then these cameras, as the boom arms bounce and sway and bounce and sway, right, over as you go over topography, I mean, all of your angles and visuals change. And so we looked at this and we're like, okay, this is expensive. This is challenging. It's inconsistent. I mean, it's kind of the way you would normally think about it. But like, what if we could take that entire process and move it three meters up in the air? And then if you do that, you have no topographical problems. You can spray when it's wet, which you can't currently do with your, you know, multi-ton sprayer. You can get into challenging areas that you'd never get your sprayer to. And then above all, because you're not limited by topography or gravity, you can go fast, right? So it was like, okay, well, drones is clearly the best way to actually solve this problem. So if we're going to solve one, let's solve both at the same time and just like go for the kill, right? And that's how Precision AI sort of moved into the drone world. Okay, which I know that the drone world opens up all sorts of other interesting problems that need to be solved, such as what was out there at the time? Maybe tell us when this was and, and what was out there that convinced you it was feasible for a drone to carry enough, whatever the, the chemical or liquid might be, and actually get this job done at scale. Yeah, so scale is really the hardest challenge, right? I mean, if you're dealing with small farms, like a drone spraying is very, very common in like in Asia and places where your farms are much, much, much smaller and the payload size isn't such a big deal anymore. But when you're trying to tackle like broad acre fields like you find in North America, you wind up with a much, much bigger logistical challenge. So the first thought is, well, just make it bigger. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the bigger the props and the bigger the drone, the more spray you can carry, right? And then we sort of realized very early on, well, that actually probably isn't the smartest way to go about this. But if you have, you know, one sprayer on a field and that sprayer breaks down, you're basically out of commission, right? You can't do anything until that sprayer is fixed. And in farming, logistics always trumps agronomy. Like getting the job done on time is always much more important than almost how you get the job done, right? And so, you know, if a big piece of equipment is out of commission, that's a problem. So making a giant drone sprayer that's hard to keep in the air is actually really expensive and actually really risky. So we sort of thought about this and said, well, what about swarms of drones, right? What if you could swarm 10 drones over a field instead of having one giant drone and each has a much smaller payload, but over 10, now you've got the same type of wingspan as you get with a, a sprayer. And if one of those drones goes down, you still have nine left to do the job. And that seemed like the actually the right solution to the problem. So you, you just swarm more drones and you can scale up to the largest field or scale down to the smallest field. It's a pretty unique approach. And before you pivoted in agriculture, you know, you were trying to design something that worked on the average person's cell phone. What was either more or less challenging about translating that into a camera on a drone? You kind of trained the algorithm to identify plants uh, on a cell phone. What was different about kind of getting that translated into drones or was that technology already out there for drones at the time? Uh, no, no, it, we actually had to, the number of inventions we had to string together to try to achieve this vision was actually, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I, I would, with, with the eyes that I have now, it was a bit crazy. Because, you know, even just something simple like drone imaging, right? It's At the time, it's like, well, you know, how many drones are out there all with cameras on them, right? This is a mature industry. We can just off the shelf a bunch of this stuff and keep our risk down. 
Well, no. <laughs> what we found is, you know, in order to be able to properly differentiate between plants, you need to see like sub-millimeter resolution. And none of these drone platforms can do that. They're all meant to fly 400 feet up in the air and get these wide, broad brush views of your field. Not enough to differentiate between plant species and just lowering them doesn't really work. You know, for a variety of reasons, which I won't bore your listeners with, but uh, we ended up having to go back and sort of rebuild everything from the ground up with the idea that, okay, well, how do we fly low, see sub-millimeter and go really fast? And that's actually a much harder challenge than we thought it was going to be. And so you just said you had to kind of create your own camera technology, but are you mounting this on existing drones or did you have to kind of create a drone from scratch? We, again, when we started this process, it was sort of like, well, there's got to be drones out there that can do this. And we found out very quickly that, you know, to be able to do everything we needed to do, there really wasn't. So we actually ended up having to build our own drone. Subsequent to that, another company came out with a drone that was powerful enough to do what we wanted to do. And we're like, hallelujah, we don't have to be a drone manufacturer, right? And so we switched to their platform and sort of hot-rotted that platform and then found a whole pile of other problems. (laughs) So it's like squeezing the balloon, right? You think you're de-risking one area, but you're actually just increasing risk in another area. And so we've kind of come full circle again, and we've come back to designing our own drone for this particular application. One thing that I'd love to have you talk about is up until the point where you, you raised a seed round earlier this year, you had bootstrapped the entire thing and kind of made significant progress, it would seem to me, How did you do that? When did you start and how did you kind of pull off the bootstrapping up until when you raised the really substantial seed round earlier this year? Well, so a combination of things. As an entrepreneur, you know, I I had some, a little bit of seed capital from when I'd sold my previous company. I'd also had kind of a a software consulting business on the side. Uh, Like it was an AI consulting firm that ended up cash flowing the original research into the buying and selling app, right? You know, because I saw it as sort of a high risk project, so why not fund it with cash flow? So, you know, I kind of did that. And then as we progressed, that sort of grew. So I was actually able to bootstrap the original part of the business based on a combination of the cash flow from that that business, as well as some additional R&D support. So Canada is a really great place to do research and development because you, you can do a lot of matching grants from the Canadian government that will allow you to de-risk some of the early stage technology. So I leveraged some of that with the cash flow and it ended up, again, being able to uh, to advance the technology to the point where like we can do this. We've, we've got this all working now. So let's get this and, and really invest into this. Okay, well, and, and talk about the the status of the company today. Where are you in commercialization efforts, and kind of give us sort of a snapshot where you're at today. Yeah, so so right now we're doing field trials of the core technology. We've had it on on a few farms already for the past couple of years. Um, our goal is to try to actually get our first commercial orders on a limited basis next year for that. So I would consider next year kind of like early adopter commercial release, and then probably really see this thing scale up, you know, the year after that. And where is the regulatory environment at in Canada? We had, you know, Rantizo on the show, uh, I guess it was episode 200 and talked a lot about trying to get through state by state FAA approval for their technology. Yours, I think would be similar. How's Canada looking as far as regulatory approval for stuff like this? For drone surveying, it's not a problem. For drone spraying, it's actually quite restrictive. So the Canadian government is well-intentioned. You know, so so I'm I'm certainly not going to be critical of it because I think it's done its job, which is to protect the environment from you know like new platforms and new things that nobody really has a lot of data on. And drone spraying, unfortunately, considering it's it's been around a long enough time that there should be some data, but there's not a lot of scientific data on it, unfortunately. So they've taken a very conservative approach and they basically said no drone spraying until we get data. 
you know, so, so it ends up being a challenge. So but what you can do is you can apply for certain exemptions if you can prove your methodology and, and the science behind it. And, and so we've, we've gone through some of that process. So, so you're able to do these things on a limited basis, uh, but the regulatory environment is still challenging for scaling it right now up here in Canada. And talk about the business model. It sounds like you're going to sell the drone package to a producer and I guess swarms of drones to a producer. And then would they pay a software as a service? Is that how it works? Yeah, so so um, our kind of primary market is actually custom sprayers right now. Like, so you would have a, a, a trailer with a swarm of drones in it. Uh, if you've entered, interviewed Grand Diesel, it's probably a very similar type of idea, right? Where a service provider will pull up to a field and the drones will go and spray their field. That's primarily the market we're going after. Now, we have not ruled out selling the assets directly to farmers. We've seen enough demand for it that that could be a very viable way to go as well. It's not the primary way we're going right now, but it's on our radar as a very, very viable opportunity. Great. And as you're kind of trialing, is this all with sort of like, uh, you know, your broad acre uh, uh, Saskatchewan prairie type crops, or are you looking at some specialty crops as well? Yeah. So primarily we're trying to solve the broad acre problem uh, because it's also, again, it's <laughs> in my style, so solve some of the hardest problems first, but that's really where you create a lot of the value, right? I mean, like take Canadian canola as an example, there's something like 14 million acres of canola. And if we can cut down the chemical process by 80 to 90% in there, that's a very, very good business. So, you know, specialty crops are definitely on our radar again, uh, especially the ones where chemical costs are pretty high, but it's actually easier at least from a business standpoint, to solve the broad acre problem and scale it down to the specialty crops, then it's to try to develop something for a specialty crop and then adapt that to the broad acre. It's, it's a whole other world. One of the areas of this I get really excited about, I mean, of course, the technology is cool and it's just a new way of doing things, which I love. But also, to me, I think it opens up the door to rethink how we formulate these chemicals in a way that if we know we're going to apply them in this way, you know, I think we can formulate them in different ways to accommodate this really precise way of administering them. And I'm sure that's something that you've all probably thought about. And it's probably still a way off, but I think that's something that's really exciting about this type of technology to me. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly correct. The previous paradigm that's basically time immemorial is, again, because human beings don't have the ability to make per plant level decisions on a giant field, you've got to spray everything, Right. But with automation and AI, well, now like it's not just us. There's other people building robots capable of making per plant level decisions. And when you can make a per plant level decision, it's a complete game changer, right? Because now, as you say, we don't need to worry about whether or not this particular chemical's impact on the crop is going to be problematic because you don't have to spray the crop, right? So, so even things that aren't currently possible, like using some organics like agricultural vinegar to control weeds, well, you can't use that on a crop today. But if you can precisely spray it and get and target just the plants. Now that becomes actually a viable method of weed control and resistance control, right? So there's all sorts of new types of completely outside the box approaches to this problem that I think are going to become the de facto standard as this technology becomes more and more prominent. And it's inevitable. It's coming. It's the efficiency improvements are just too great. You can't hold back the ocean. One of the uh, articles that I read about what you're doing, it just alluded to the fact that this will in improve grower competitiveness through traceability. And I, I didn't quite connect the dots on that. Where does kind of grower competitiveness and traceability come into play here? So we're, we're on another interesting inflection point, right? Uh, most industries um, in the world go through a decommoditization process. So as an example, you think of craft beer, right? It used to just be beer, and then it's, now it's craft beer, and now there's a million craft beers out there, right? Wine, right? All of these different types of things to decommoditize. And right now, when you're talking about like broad acre agricultural commodities, you've got essentially two classes. You've got organics, and you've got everything else. But what's happening now is as consumers are waking up to what they put inside their body, 
there's a consumer push coming for healthier foods and foods that are also sustainably grown. And you're seeing because of this social pressure or these social pushes, you're seeing that that kind of come down in two ways. One is the regulatory environment, right? So in, in something like the European Union, they've actually forbidden importing crops grown with certain chemicals. And those chemicals are a big part of life here in Broadacre, North America. Like, for example, if you grow oats with glyphosate, well, you can't sell those oats into the EU anymore. And the science doesn't really matter. It's just because that's what the consumers are asking for. So what, what they've done is, is the World Health Organization has established this thing called maximum residue levels that they consider sort of safe food residue levels based on all the different chemicals that are out there. So in other places, based on the social pressure, they're starting to say, no, we're not listening to the WHO anymore. We're going to put our own standards in. And those own standards are way lower, right? So in other words, you can't meet them <laughs> if you're growing broad acre crops. So there's these trade issues that are coming in because of the chemical use. And on the second side of it, you're actually seeing the downstream grain buyers, like the, you know, the people that are buying the grain for your cereal, are actually offering contracts and willing to pay a premium for sustainably grown commodities because that's a competitive advantage for their products. And so you're seeing this decommoditization of ag happening right before our eyes. And right now, the challenge of doing the low chemical stuff is that there's no real way to do it on Broadacre. But using a technology like ours, if you can actually grow your commodities without chemicals impacting the crop and you can test it and trace it through the value chain, you actually are seeing downstream buyers that are willing to pay a premium for those crops. So you not only do you save the chemical up front on the one side, but your commodities could be worth 50 cents a bushel more on the other side. But you need that traceability to make sure that they say, hey, look, what I'm paying that extra 50 cents a bushel for is actually what's showing up on my doorstep. And that's the traceability side. Right. So it's not just the amount of residue tested downstream, but it's also the proof in the data of saying, look, here's how the crop was grown, administering the inputs through your technology kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So so basically there's like a three-step process. First, you have to do it, right? You got to grow your crops with less chemical, and then you have to prove it. So that usually involves some sort of residue testing at a third-party independent lab, but there's lots of places that do that. And then once you get that sort of rubber stamp, then the next thing you have to do is you have to trace it through the value system so that whoever is willing to pay that premium knows that they're getting what they paid for. And if you use those three things, you actually can, again, decommoditize those products and actually get additional new contracts for sustainably grown commodities through the system. So that's another thing that's happening in the industry. Yeah, I've had a few conversations about these residue limits, these MRLs. It is an interesting global dynamic where you've got certain countries saying, well, the global standard, let's say it's 10 parts per billion. And even that's way below anything that would even affect human health. But for our people, because we care more, we're going to five parts per billion. And like you said, it's not so much necessarily what the science says, but it's like that's what they're going to demand. And so they know they're going to have to pay a premium for it. But it's also they can signal to their people like we care more about you than everybody else cares about their people. But, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic and it does impact the farm level for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Very cool. Well, all right, let's talk about the scale issue, because I think we really need to drill in on that. That's going to be, I think, at the top of a lot of listeners' mind, like, yes, this is great, and it sounds like it works really well in Asia, but we're talking major acres here, and there's a reason why we have these great big sprayers with these great big booms, and I'm not so sure that you know drones could really be as efficient as that setup. Kind of walk us through how yours might work on a large half section of ground versus, you know, a sprayer, I guess. There's always going to be certain things that a ground sprayer probably will be more efficient at. So if you're applying something like insecticide where you have to blanket your old fields or something, right, you know, there will be things that, that that's useful for. But really where where you get a lot of the benefits 
of the drone spraying is that it actually widens your spray window in ways. Because right now, again, if it's wet, if you just had a rain and it's too wet, you can't spray. Well, using a drone, you can. Or if you've got like really challenging topography of a certain area and you can't really get your sprayer on that very easily, like using a drone, you can fly over obstacles, <laughs> you know, where you normally have to drive your sprayer around them. You can move from field to field really quickly. So there's all these other sort of like incremental logistical benefits of using drones. If you can kind of solve what the, the key problem is, which you've identified, which is, okay, I've got to change batteries and I've got to refill these small spray tanks all the time. So that's going to slow me down. And that's a, very, a really, really valid point. But what we're doing is we actually realize that that's the key bottleneck here. And so we've invested into a platform where our drones can actually fly for two hours at a time. So it's not like you're changing batteries every 20 minutes. And they fly at, you know, about 20 meters a second. So that's 70 kilometers an hour. So if I had to pull that out of miles per hour, I don't know what that is. It's somewhere, what, what's 1.6? I don't know. So it's something like 50 miles an hour, I'm just going to say. So, you know, you're flying at 50 miles an hour. You're spraying at 50 miles an hour, which is about two to three times faster than any ground sprayer. So you're covering more acres in a faster amount of time. If you can swarm those drones, so as an example, our drones are going to be 21 feet long. Now, a 21-foot swath times by five drones, you've got a 100-foot swath going now three times faster than your ground sprayer. So you can actually cover more acres. You don't have to worry about topography. You can do all that other sort of stuff at the expense of this, of this challenge of now you've got to refill your tanks more often. But that's fine, right? So what, how do you solve that problem? Well, what we do is we were creating a transport where a drone, once it starts running low, a chemical can land and auto-refill itself and pick up and essentially take up where it left off. So that, that's a critical part of the deployment of the solution to solving these logistical problems. So I guess what I'm saying is don't look at where things are today. Look at all these supporting systems that companies like ours or like Grantees or in some of these other ones are going to be building in to actually make this feasible. Because once this becomes feasible, it's a game changer. Is viscosity an issue when you're trying to be as precise as you are? You've got a very, very small area that you're trying to hit. And I would assume that the consistency of the spray itself matters as opposed to droplets. You're looking at like a stream. Am I thinking about that right? This sort of gets into a bit of a trade secret. So I'm like, I got to be a little bit careful how much I, I want to talk about it. But, but we've done a lot of research into how to kind of find the optimal balance between what a, you know, a traditional sprayer does today, presuming you're spraying everything, and how the heck you control drift, right? Because drift, especially when you're dealing with a drone type of environment, is very important. And, and when you put those things all together, you wind up with a set of parameters that sort of describe how your spray needs to look and needs to adhere to the plants. And so we've done a lot of research on that. Well, very cool. So, you know, you've got this uh, funding that you announced in May, a combination of both equity and then you mentioned kind of the matching grants in some cases from uh, the government. You're rolling out these pilots, kind of what are the milestones you're looking forward to here in the next 18 months? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, uh, as you know, in agriculture, stuff has to work. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, like the penalty for failure is very high. And and what we're doing is actually extremely challenging, right? Because not only do we have to have an AI system capable of being able to see these plants when you're going so fast and make split second decisions as to whether to spray or not spray, that has to be right. And then on top of that, you have to make sure that your spray system is actually capable of hitting the right plant at the right time with the right amount of chemicals. So when you're doing all that stuff together, it's really, really complex. And so we've sort of set an internal metric that we want to see as, you know, a certain number of acres that are totally sprayed without any real issues that can meet at least as good an outcome as a traditional sprayer. And once we hit those, then we know we'll be ready for commercialization. So we're, we're tracking towards that. We're not quite there yet, but I think within the next 18 months, we'll hit that and we'll be pretty happy when we do. And for you, having so many experiences uh, in entrepreneurship outside of agriculture and, and ag tech 
what have you observed as as sort of different with this venture that might be industry specific from at one point an outsider looking in? Yeah, it's a great question. So agriculture is it's a whole other thought process. So two things. So first of all, when you're doing the research and development, you're really limited by mother nature in a way that you're not with any other industry. Like, so for example, if you're trying to get your tech right and those plants are growing and you've got your spray window, which is like, you know, a certain time of the year, mother nature is going to keep moving on even if you're not ready. So if you don't get it right, it's like, well, better luck next year, right? <laughs> so that's that's really challenging. So you've really got to have your stuff together, right? You, you have to make sure that you understand the seasonality and the cycles that you're dealing with. What really excites me as an entrepreneur is the fact that it's one of the few industries left in the world where the lifetime value of the customer is potentially generational. You know, if you've been using a green sprayer and you're because your parents used the green sprayer and your children might use a green sprayer, right? So it's, you know, if you get it right, you have a chance to really be part of building a relationship with those customers that last longer than almost in any other industry. So the payoff is very huge. But the downside of that, again, is that your growth cycles are a lot smaller. Like if I was to build a, a, like a mobile app, like a social media app, right? You build your app, you roll it out there, and then you hope for exponential growth right away. You'll never get that in agriculture because you need to be able to prove that this thing works and to build the trust of those farmers slowly. No farmer in their right mind is going to give you their whole field on day one. They might give you, let's say, okay, I'll let you try it on 20, 30 acres. Let's see how it works. So you try it in your 20, 30 acres. Okay, it worked really well. Well, maybe next year I'll give you a quarter section. Okay, that worked really well. Okay, maybe I'll look at rolling it out to my whole farm. So you've got this like three-year sales cycle. But again, the payoff is, you know, 30 years if you get it right. It's a very, very unique industry. And so you have to have a lot of capital and a lot of patience up front and understand how much trust is important to this process, more so than in any other industry. I don't think anyone has ever brought that up. That's such a great point about the lifetime value being generational. That's really interesting. You know, doing these pilots, kind of early adopter commercialization, have you all figured out or determined what the business model will be? If Is it going to be similar to, to Rentizo in terms of like some sort of like revenue share program, or is it going to be selling and then as a service or still to be determined? Yeah, so so um, still to be determined is probably the correct answer to that. You know, I, I think the nice thing about this industry is that uh, there's so few companies that are trying to really solve drone spraying at scale, at least in North America here right now. We've all been sort of relatively quite collaborative. You know, you'd expect it to be really competitive, but the, the opportunity is so huge that we've all sort of realized that collaboration is a much smarter way to go. So, so you know, as we learn or as Rentizo learns or as, you know, some of the other people in this industry learn, you know, I, I suspect we're going to be sharing some of our findings so that we can all advance this industry. And, and, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. So as we learn this process, we'll have more concrete answers for you on that one. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you mentioned before, like the amount of money that's spent on, you know, boom sprayers. I mean, it, it's just a massive frontier and we're not even close to scratching the surface when it comes to drone spraying, it would seem. That's correct. Yeah. Very, very exciting. Well, is there any other ag tech startup out there that you've encountered that we haven't talked about yet here today that, that you think is doing interesting work? Uh, I always like to give a chance for every guest to give a shout out at the end of an episode. Yeah, I, I think there's there's lots of companies doing interesting things like limiting it to one would be pretty pretty tricky. I think I think the one that that I'm really intrigued by is carbon robotics. They're the ones that are doing sea and spray using lasers. Because, you know, obviously everybody likes the idea of using lasers, uh, right, instead of using chemicals. You know, I see a lot of challenges with that, but they've got a lot of smart people at the helm. And if they can figure out how to kind of tackle some of those challenges, I think that could be a really interesting thing to keep an eye on going forward. Cool. 
Yeah, we just had Paul on our Ag Robotics Roundtable a few episodes ago from Carbon Robotics. Really interesting stuff. Well, this has been great, Dan. I really appreciate the time. I know you've got a million things going on and a lot of work ahead of you, but but also a lot of exciting things. So thank you for taking the time and best of luck as you go forward here. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you very much once again to Daniel McCann of Precision AI for being on the show today. You can learn more about what they're doing over on their website, which is just precision.ai. I also want to mention a really cool project that Precision AI is involved with, along with SureGrowth Solutions, Exceed Grain Marketing, and the Global Institute for Food Security. It came together with a co-investment from Protein Industries Canada. The $26.2 million project is helping to develop artificial intelligence to detect weeds and insect pests and ultimately reduce chemical usage. This is really cool because the $12.8 million in funds from Protein Industries Canada will go directly into developing the technology without forcing a company like Precision AI to give up that inequity. I'm always looking to highlight creative funding models for ag tech, and I think it's pretty cool what Protein Industries Canada is doing up there. Well, thank you once again to Fulcrum Global Capital for supporting this podcast and for investing in cool companies like Precision AI that I get to feature as part of the show. Learn more about what they're doing over at FGCVC.com. So Fulcrum Global Capital Venture Capital, so FGCVC.com. And thanks for you listening, for sticking around all the way to the end here. And for your time and your attention, I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.